The Canucks finish the second half of a back-to-back in Nashville tonight after beating the Blackhawks last night. It is Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also does a great work covering the team at The Athletic. And as always, Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, just as we all predicted and expected at the beginning of the year, it was Alex Chason, Luke Shen, and Yarrow Halak leading the Canucks to a big, big win to keep their flickering playoff hopes alive here uh, as we roll the calendar over into February. Well, maybe the flickering part. (laughs) <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, if you told me that script, I'd say, well, I I believe the last part for sure. I loved Luke Shen's block and goal. Oh, that for me sensational. was the, that for me was the highlight of the night. Just the the like you can't get a much better empty net goal than that. No, and, it, and the confidence and like, yep, this is exactly well, what I'm like, doing. It felt like it was the same movement. Like he blocked a shot yep. and you know hit it down ice, 150 feet. Right on the nose, all in all in what seemed like a split second. It was like they got one bad angle wrist shot and the game was over. Um, it was a mic drop moment for a p- type of position player, a stay-at-home defensive defenseman that don't get many mic drop moments. But he did. Got the Bobby Orr comparison post-game <laughs> from Bruce Boudreaux. Um, who has the measure of this team, right? I, I thought, like, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this because I don't want our inbox to fill up with the negativity stuff. Yes. I'm watching the Blackhawks play and the pace at which they play. And the fact that the only guy I liked on their entire team was Brandon Hagel. Like he was the only guy I was like, I see that. I I think that guy looks pretty good. Uh, Usually I like Kubelik. I think Connor Murphy's improved a ton, but yet last night I thought they were off. I, I just thought their pace was brutal. And, you know, they made the unforced error late too with the too many men. On the ice penalty. I mean, really, it was not a not a banner no. day for an organization that deserves no banner days. But as I watched this team, I just thought, I can't believe someone was all in on this roster. And while the Canucks manhandled them and are superior to the Blackhawks in just about every way, this team is this roster is also an all-in roster. Like four draft picks, four first round picks since the year 2020 were surrendered to construct those two teams. And I thought the hockey game was a bit of a dog's breakfast. Like, oh. it, like it was a good bounce-back performance from, for the Canucks from the Calgary game. They were superior in all facets. I loved the aggression in the third period, even though they were leading. Um, there was a lot to like about the game. It was also a big win in terms of keeping their playoff hopes alive. But I still came away from that being like, neither of these teams is winning around, much less making the playoffs. And considering all of the treasure that has been invested in making them win now teams for this year it's just like oh boy that is wild to consider yeah it was a dire performance by the Blackhawks and full credit to the Canucks for coming out and as you said manhandling them they were clearly the better team full credit full full value for the two points on the road in Chicago but it was just another you know this has kind of become we talk so much about identity and okay have they found an identity under Bruce Boudreaux but the Canucks' identity has really become 
great goaltending, which, you know, other than the one goal that went in, Yarrow Halak made some really good saves, didn't have a ton of work to do, but another strong performance from a Canucks goaltender. And just in general, low event hockey has kind of become what we see a lot of from the Canucks. The Blackhawks didn't generate a whole lot. The Canucks generated a little bit more, but not a dominant offensive performance, you would say, from the team. And as you said, as as Bruce Boudreaux kind of tries to find the measure of the team, we're still waiting for a consistent stretch of, and now they didn't have their full complement of forwards again because Tanner Pearson wasn't in the lineup. Vasily Podkolzin was a healthy scratch by choice by Bruce Boudreaux, but we're still kind of waiting for the, the high-event, high-powered offense, leaky defense version of the Canucks to show up. And at this point, at this point in the season, I think you just kind of have to expect, you know what? If they're going to keep winning games, it's probably going to look like this. It's going to look like low event, rely on your goaltending, and they find a couple ways to to score goals if you're going to find those two points every night. Yeah, yeah, they're looking almost like a classic Western Conference systems team, and I say that as a compliment. Um, you know, if you can grind out wins like that, if you've got the Lamico Mott Highmore line playing the way they are against top competition, and I thought they were excellent. Probably Vancouver's best or second best trio, depending on your mileage for Horvat, Pedersen, and Garland. Uh, I'd probably take the Pedersen line, yeah, over them, but not by a lot. Especially when once the competition, like the quality of the competition they faced, which was often the Patrick Kane line, uh, is factored in. Another good game from them, and I feel like that's become the staple identity line of the low event team you're discussing as opposed to, you know, the lotto the line, lotto line or like or, something yeah. more sexy yep. on paper on a marquee. It's kind of the lunch pail thing that's that's grinding out these points for the Canucks, which is, you know, an interesting shift and and I think speaks too to what we've been talking about for a while, which is that if you are trying to find parts of the Canucks that make sense with Rutherford's usual template, the Lamico Highmore Mott line stands above almost everything other than Quinn Hughes and, and maybe Tucker Pullman. My my favorite guy, I think, <laughs> is a better fit in Boudreaux's system than he was previously. Um, you know, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an element of this team that, that fits that to a T more than the Highmore Mott Lamico line. All guys expiring, by the way. Mott's name also likely to come up in trade chatter over the course of the next six, seven weeks. And, you know... Considering that fit, I think that's a, one of the more interesting names. I wonder if that's one of the more difficult decisions um, in terms of to extend or, or to deal, in part because of what he represents, I think, in terms of where this team wants to go. Well, and I wonder if Luke Shen is becoming a difficult decision for the team as well. Now, he's not expiring. He's under contract for next year at a very reasonable rate. We've talked a lot in this hour, Drance, about when you compare what you're getting from Luke Shen, and he had another really strong performance last night. The partnership with Quinn Hughes is working extremely well. Yeah, of course, it doesn't hurt that Quinn Hughes is a a phenomenally talented player, and I thought had another very, very strong performance last night. But when you look at what you're getting from Luke Shen compared to Tucker Pullman, compared to Travis Hamanick this year, and who knows what you're going to get from him next year, Shen is a player who I think would obviously have value at the trade deadline, that contending teams would look at the value he can bring for the Canucks, the value he's brought to Tampa Bay in their cup runs, the role he can play in your, you know, in the bottom of your lineup as a contending team. There would be interest in Luke Shen, but just like with Tyler Mott, I do wonder if the Canucks look at it and say, hey, we need to find value anywhere we can in our blue line. Luke Shen is giving us that, a guy we can roll out with our top defenseman, Quinn Hughes, and have faith they can go out and play 20 minutes together every night and give us 
a certain level of performance, do we actually need to hold on to that, even as we're desperate to generate assets, generate picks and prospects at this trade deadline? Yeah, and the logic is different for Luke Shen than it is for some of the bigger names that we're discussing because he's not attached to a big ticket, right? Because it's 850K. Uh, You know, I don't think it's a hard decision for the Canucks on Luke Shen. I think Luke Shen is a keep because you can still trade him as a rental a year from now anyway if, if things go sideways on you. He can play top four minutes for you. He's the type of guy that you know you're going what you're going to get from him in terms of that honest effort, in terms of the work rate in practice and in games, in terms of the positive professional attitude. If he's a scratch, if you're winning, if you're losing, he's a quality person, and you have to wait that, especially as you're considering maybe taking a step back, yep. what that could mean for the room. Uh, and then the last thing is, what are you getting for Luke Shen? You're getting a third, maybe. You're getting a mid-round pick at best. And so I, I think it would take, you know, it would take the kind of return where you honestly have to refresh the page on sportsnet.ca a few times <laughs> to be like, they, they dealt Wait, what? They dealt what for Luke Shen? <laughs> like, unless you get that, I don't think it's a tough decision. And that's one of the easiest holds on this team. I, w- the only, I agree with a lot of that. The only thing I will say is sometimes... Those trades happen at the deadline for depth defensemen, where you do have to refresh NHL.com or Sportsnet.ca a couple of times to say, hey, hold on, wait a second. That guy went for a second round pick. That guy went for two second round picks. So it's not out of the question that they could be get an offer like that. But I agree, absent something like that that really knocks your socks off and really makes you think, holy cow, if if this is his value, then we got to consider it. Because of his situation, because he's locked in at such a reasonable team-friendly number for for next year, and as you said, still has value at the uh, at, at next year's trade deadline as a rental that you can capitalize on if you want, it probably would take a pretty significant offer. Again, given just how well he's fit uh, with the Canucks and with Quinn Hughes specifically. I like I- that we're doing this difficult decisions thing. It's like, let's go through the roster. <laughs> <laughs> well... So we talked about the game, as well, you said. Bit it's, of their a dog- word. it's their words, right? Difficult decision is literally their framing. Bit, bit of a dog's breakfast, as you said. One of the most interesting talking points probably comes from Stan Smeal's interview on Hometown that's Hockey. A good, that's a good shout. And Stan Smeal, we've talked a lot about his role in the organization, the role he played when the new regime came in and the old regime left. What role will he play going forward? And... A lot of that has just come down to kind of the idea of him as the conscience of the organization, the Mm. voice of truth, the voice of honesty. And Drancer, you know this as someone who's worked in, you know, communications, PR for an NHL team. If you want to douse the flames of trade rumors, there's very established paths you can take to do that when you're in front of a camera or in front of a microphone, right? And Stan Smeal, I'm sure, knew he was going to be asked about his team being involved in an awful lot of trade rumors. And he did not take that opportunity to say, well, you know, we get calls all the time, but we love our team and we or we like our team and we're looking forward to making a playoff run. He could have said that if he wanted. That's not what he said in that interview. What he said was, hey, if, if you're in trade rumors, you should take it as a compliment and we need to get cap space. And 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 we, uh, you know, we have had some tough decisions to make here. Let's just listen to uh, Stan Smeal in his own words, what he had to say in that interview. You know, it's going to be a tough decision moving forward. Uh, as for the players, I think this is part of the business that you've learned over the years. Um, as we get closer to the trading de- deadline here in March, that a lot of names will come up. And I think for myself, if I was in their position, um, that you would want to hear your name uh, come up because then you, you know that a team wants you and you're doing the right things. 
as for us as an organization, we're going to have to sit down here over the next couple of weeks and really decide which way we're going to go. Of course, the salary cap is a big issue, and, and we've got to deal with that if we want to move forward. Uh, that is Stan That was Smeal. not us playing him no. off. I just want to be very that clear. Was... <laughs> we would not play off Stan Smeal. Well, I love it because it's hometown hockey. So, <laughs> I know. you know, the, the thrust of the intermission coverage is a lot different than your normal totally. broadcast. So there's kind of the, the soft focus music well, to leave the segment. And I like as that... Stan Smeal is talking about, we got to make some really tough personnel decisions. <laughs> I like that as they asked the question, they were like, 20 seconds here. They gave him the like prompt. Yeah. It's like, hey, we're going to ask you something really complicated requiring some tech. 20 seconds. Like, ah, yeah. Stan just has We're, no time for we, it. Uh, we might trade a lot of people. Is, is what, what I, I, I was thinking about this the other day, by the way. I think Stan Smeal might have the least complicated Canucks legacy of any great in the history of the franchise. You know, Trevor Linden has the presidency, all that's come with it. Nasland has the, the lack of playoff success, yep. right? They never went on that big run. Um, you know, the... Sorry, who else? Pavel Bure. Pavel Bure never comes back. Yeah, Yeah, Luongo, obviously. Uh, The Twins are now in management. I mean, their story is untold. To this point, they have uncomplicated Canucks legacies. But I would say the difference as well is you look at the Sedin teams that didn't win the Stanley Cup, and there's a perception that that represents underachieving. Whereas with Stan Smeal, obviously his trip to the Stanley Cup final, overachieving, right? So it doesn't have the same... It's even in that situation, his legacy is viewed, I think, in a more positive or uncomplicated light than you could argue with the Sedins. But then for how long he's been around, right? I mean, the, the, the what's interesting about Stan Smeal, too, right, is Stan Smeal's got to be one of the very few people in Canucks land that can count both Trevor Linden and Mike Gillis as, as like, friends. <laughs> like, that's the mark of someone who's a, a really good guy, right? Just, like, a really, um, you know... Uh, agreeable just he's the organization's best soldier the best soldier they've ever had it's so uncomplicated he's so unvarnished and authentic in his presentation it is uh quite remarkable and you saw that honesty again last night again with those comments echoing a lot of what we've heard from jim rutherford of what we've heard from insiders reporting on the canucks thinking right tough decisions need to clear up salary cap space and we're gonna have to sit down and you know really decide decide on how we're going to proceed with a bunch of different players we've been talking about Tyler Mott Luke Shen we all know they're even more high profile players involved in that conversation as well uh 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line the smart alternative visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Nolan Merritt texts in, before the game, I was ripping Bruce for playing Chase on and Dickinson over Pod Colson. Chase plays well on both ends of the ice. Uh, Dickinson was way more involved than previous games. He says, is there some strategy here by coaching and management to increase value before the trade deadline? I, I want to talk about a lot going on in that text from Nolan Merritt. I will say, to the idea of trying to increase the value in those players... I've never really bought into the, oh, they're showcasing player X to try to move him before the deadline, because I think generally teams have a pretty good idea of how they value veteran NHL players, right? I don't think teams are going to be looking at the fact that Alex Chason scored a goal last night and all of a sudden saying, you know what, we really got to go out and make a deal for Alex Chason. But I did think, you know, we talked about tough decisions that the front office has to make with the roster going forward. Bruce Boudreaux made probably a you know, relatively tough decision to scratch Vasily Pod Colson last night. There was a lot of reaction along the lines of what Nolan Merritt is saying. How is Alex Chase on in the lineup? Why not take Dowling or Dickinson out ahead of Vasily Pod Colson? What's he doing sitting in the press box? And I, I did think it was interesting. First of all, 
Are are we starting to see the Bruce Boudreaux honeymoon wind down between the coach and Canucks fans? Because that was no. the first decision to me that really got a lot of blowback from the coach. Now, I it say pays no. off. I say no. It pays off. And I, I agree with you because Chase on scores, right? And because Boudreaux comes out after the game and says, look, it's not a punishment for Pod Colson. Yeah. He's going to be back. And he confirmed that tonight or today when he spoke to the media. Pod Colson will be in the lineup against Nashville. But I did think it was, it was like, oh, could we, could we be seeing the end of the honeymoon here? But I don't think no. it's over just yet. And just in general, Look, I get why there's always this reaction and this backlash when a promising young player spends a game in the press box. But this is something that happens around the NHL, right? The NHL coaches almost universally are wary of trusting rookies. They love to play veterans, and sometimes they don't love to play rookies. And I think it's especially interesting when Travis Green was here, There somehow there was this narrative that he was uniquely hard on young players entering the lineup, young players entering the NHL, right? When, the, didn't, in, when the industry thinks the opposite. That he didn't give them the right opportunities, despite having three consecutive Calder finalists, despite Niels Hoaglander getting guaranteed time in the top six last year in his rookie year. I guess because of Goldobin. Like, Goldobin, who else? I mean, I've, I would say I don't think Jonah Gadjevich got a fair shot at training camp before they put him on waivers. Uh, I'll say that, but, I mean... You but know. beyond that, no. I, I mean, there's a lot of coaches who would have not played Quinn Hughes in a matchup role by the second half of his rookie season, or had him as an everyday top four guy from day one. There's a lot of coaches who would have started Pedersen on the wing, right, or, or would have played him far fewer minutes in his first season, even after he had that electric shot, um, you know, out of a cannon to begin his tenure. Yep. Um, there's certainly a lot of coaches that would have bumped Hoaglander down the lineup, especially with higher paid more established players with proven track records flanking Pearson and Horvat on the line on the roster. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, uh, I, I think the industry would, is going to view when interview season comes up, um, you know, the Canucks development of NHL players, like of young players at the NHL level is something that's like an, a reason to bring green on. Um, as opposed to the opposite. So that that's just one where I don't know the perception matches reality. As for the Boudreaux honeymoon, you know, I think Boudreaux's a master of the macro. I think because his approach to pressure and, and aggressive tactics overall works, um, you know, it, it can not obscure, but certainly diminish the amount of attention that player deployment decisions uh, or like the, the attention that those get. And so, you know, there's a few things right now that the Canucks are doing that I don't particularly love, like Dickinson playing top line. I don't really have a ton of time for that. Uh, I didn't think he had a particularly good game, nor was he particularly involved. In fact, I thought the Miller-Besser line was probably Vancouver's worst on the night. Um, you know, I, I, Oliver ekman Larson in the, in the, at the right flank. Yeah, like JT, that's one that stands out. Give me JT Miller, give me Brock Besser, give me Pedersen. And Horvat. Like you, you can give me, you can give me five names, six names, maybe Garland. Like you can probably go seven, eight names deep before I, I'd be like, yes, he's the, he's the best option there. Um, so you know, there's, there's things to quibble with, but again, I think Boudreaux's a master of the macro in the global sense. He has this team playing better. He's getting the most he possibly could out of this team. He's getting responses after poor performances. They're eking out points in games they don't deserve to, and. You know, I think there's a real skill to that, something that he's proven repeatedly over the course of his NHL storied NHL tenure. 
And as such, I think so long as the results continue, and, and in Vancouver, perhaps so long as the good process continues, I, I think he's going to get and he's going to deserve uh, the benefit of the doubt. And again, as you said, his focus on the macro, that's kind of what he emphasized talking about Pod Coles and the decision to sit him after the game last night, right? Saying, hey, I wanted him to, sometimes it's good to sit out, watch a game, but we're not worried. It's not a punishment. He'll be back. And Torgy texts in, people complaining about Pod sitting out, need to chill out. It's good for him. He's going to be a good player for us. Another unsigned text says, probably just wanted Pod to watch the game from above for some very reasonable reasons. And that that's what it comes down to for me, right? You don't... It can be frustrating, I understand that, but you don't need to be outraged because a rookie or a young player spends one night in the press box watching the game. I don't think this is, you know, Bruce Boudreaux saying he's out on the development of Vasily Podkolz. And again, I think it's a macro, long-term play to try to get the most out of the player. And that's interesting because, as we heard from Bruce Boudreaux when he spoke to the media today before the game in Nashville, Podkolz will be back in the lineup. Tanner Pearson will be back in the lineup as well. And that means a couple of forwards need to come out. Now, the obvious one is Justin Dowling. I think that's a pretty easy decision for Bruce Boudreaux to make. But you look at the other options to come out, Alex Chason would be the logical name, but he just played a really good game. He just scored a goal. I'm not sure Bruce Boudreaux is going to do that. And you look at the other forwards who have seen their ice time decline in recent games and the, the likely candidate to come out tonight, I think it's going to be Niels Hoaglander. So a lot of this conversation about... Is this punishment? Is Boudreaux being too hard on young players? Why is he playing, you know, chase on over over some of the promising young talent on the Canucks? I think we're we might be in for a redux of that conversation, Drancer, because I think there's a pretty decent chance that Niels Hoaglander sits today. Well, and, and Dickinson was second among all Canucks forwards in ice time, so I don't think he's an option. I feel like he'd be the fans' pick. I know it hasn't worked out for him. I still think he's a much better player than he's shown, and I actually think he's provided some sneaky value, especially in the defensive end of the rink. That doesn't mean that I have a lot of time for seeing him with Miller and Besser, but I, you know, I, I do think that, like, I don't think there's a lot of questions about are they showcasing guys for deals? Yeah, I think with Dickinson, they're just trying to rebuild his confidence. I honestly do. I think they're trying to get him feeling good about his game because they know. You know, he's got a lengthy NHL track record as a rangy, effective bottom six forward who can play third line minutes and help you, like help you, period. Be like a 20 point, 10 goal defensive stopper. And that just hasn't happened here. Um, you know, I, I think they're probably I think it's probably more about rebuilding his confidence and, and good on them. I mean, they've made a pretty big commitment to him. They do need to get more out of him. He's been used in premium spots throughout Boudreaux's tenure here. And I think they're, I think I think it's a much simpler explanation than a showcase yeah. or, or something like that. And to be fair, rebuilding his confidence helps his play, helps his performance on the ice, which also helps his trade value, right? So it's not showcasing. It's, as you said, just trying to get the most out of the player. One, because it helps you and what you're trying to do. And it also does make it more feasible, make it more plausible to try to move the player. And just to your point, I mean, two years ago, you know, he played 16 minutes a night on the Dallas team that went to the Stanley Cup Finals, right? Like, big, important minutes for a team that went deep in he the He was the matchup center. He was the matchup center against the Braden Point line in Dallas's one uh, game one victory over the Lightning. And, in fact, stayed in that role and, and kept that point line relatively contained. Like, the Lightning did their damage on the power play, you know? I mean, he was legitimately in the Stanley Cup Final playing plus hockey as Braden Point's shadow. And that was not, that was less than two years ago. Yeah. It was 18 months ago. 
So, you know, it, it hasn't worked out for him here, but clearly, or for me anyway, I think the organization must be looking at that and thinking, there's something off here. Can we get him back on track? You know, let's let's see let's see what our options are in terms of his form. That's what I read into Dickinson getting those minutes. Um, again, I, I would I would like to see him play. I would like to see him if you're if you're getting Pearson back tonight, for example, right? You've yep. got that Highmore Lamico Mott Mott line, right? And you're using them in Tufts. But what about what about going Miller Pearson, right? Miller Pearson with Dickinson, so you can have. Miller take draws for Dickinson, but Dickinson kind of plays center two. You kind of have two interchangeable pieces. All big rangy guys, right? They're going to spend a lot of time forechecking, bogging teams down, and they can sort of take toughs. Then you've got a secondary toughs line yep. with, with Lamico and company. And then you've got Pedersen, Horvat, and Garland. Garland, who can wreck havoc against third pairs and third lines. Like that to me would be a very interesting look. I'd love to see it. And then, and then you know, you have some guys, you have some options for guys who can score. Like, you could even build something like a, you know, Dowling, Hoaglander, Pod Colson, fourth Besser, line. as well, is still, is still in the Did mix Did I not here, use right? Besser? No, it would be Besser, Pod Colson, and Chason. So you don't have a center there because you're doubling up Horvath, right, so Pedersen, and Miller Dickinson. You need Dowling. Yeah. So you'd have to take Chason out and put but, Dowling I mean, you'd, in there. But, I mean, you'd have a pretty good player somewhere. I mean, really, the Lamico line's your fourth line. So yeah. you're just using them in, in toughs. But you can build two really interesting middle six lines with a lot of offensive pop out of some of the names uh, available. So that would be something that I'd be very keen to see tried, especially because I think that's the opportunity. Like, if you can sick Dickinson on toughs and mine his defensive value there, you know what? Unfortunately, a little bit like they used to do with Erickson. Right on the Horvat Pearson line, where it's like your expectations are far lower, but they can actually help you win by just sort of, you know, um, advancing the runner as it were, as opposed to swinging for the fences. Well, and that yeah, and that was the expectation when the Dickinson trade happened, right? That he was going to be the third line center who soaked up a lot of those tough minutes, right? So that Bo Horvat didn't have to, and it's just never really materialized like that. Now, as you said, the Lamico line has kind of usurped that role, but I do wonder, and, and I wonder if even. If you, like, obviously Boudreaux loves what that Lamico line can do against top competition. So if you have them playing the absolute toughest minutes, right, against the other team's best lines, and then as we as we talk about trying to rebuild Dickinson's value, okay, he doesn't have to shoulder the entire burden of being the defensive forward, but can you start building up his confidence in that role in kind of the secondary tough minutes, whether it is with Pearson? Pearson and player X, I think, is kind of the logical pairing there the logical trio and just get him into that get him back to playing that role that you expected him to play I know it wasn't this management group but that the team expected him to play when they acquired him because it's just I don't know that you're going to get the most out of Jason Dickinson playing him on the wing with offensive minded players no right I, I just don't that's not why he was acquired that's not what his role has been in the NHL get him doing what he's supposed to do which is being your third line center who can go up against tough competition and, and help just, you win. And just mitigate damage. I mean, that's what that's what Dickinson does well. He doesn't surrender a lot. He can be one of those low-event guys, and that sort of works with the Canucks' identity at the moment. Anyway, uh, enough of the Dickinson talk. Yes. But the, the it's just an interesting sort of deployment thing. I'm very curious to see who draws out of the lineup with two Canucks forwards coming yep. back. I think we assume Dowling. D- Dowling would be, I would certainly lock that in, or I would write that down in so pen, that, but, but we'll which, see. Which means immediately, if so if Dowling's out, it means immediately one of Pedersen or Dickinson moves back to the middle. So that's another thing to consider uh, for why it would be yeah. likely to be Dowling, unless they want to leave both those guys on the wing. 
So it, I mean, could could they view Pearson and Chase on, even though he scored last night, as interchangeable pieces, right? Yep. Um, and 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 Hoaglander and Pod Coles in the same way. Uh, my guess is as good as yours, but there's a lot of different ways to look at it. I'll put my money on Dowling and Hoaglander. It's an interesting point about the centers. I would be just as fine with having Pedersen move back to center at this point. I know there's been some good results with that unit with him on the wing. I'm ready to see him at center again full time. But yeah, I'll, I'll take I'll put my money on Dowling and Hoaglander. But as you said, some interesting choices. I'll go with the wings. I'll go with make. the wings. We can we can see. Uh, All right. So Hoaglander and Chase on. And, and we can uh, we can compare and contrast how we did tomorrow we'll on tomorrow's show. It sounds good. Uh, Six fifty. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in as we look ahead to tonight's matchup with the Nashville Predators. By the way, make sure you subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Lots more coming up. Plus, hey, the Canucks have played 20 games with Bruce Boudreau behind the bench. We'll share our thoughts on where the team is after 20 games, plus hear from the coach himself on that topic it is the canucks hour sportsnet 650 welcome back it is the canucks hour sportsnet 650 jamie dodd and canucks insider and athletic writer thomas drantz here with you for one more segment on a Canucks game day, 5 p.m. puck drop against the Nashville Predators as Canucks close out a road trip. Second half of a back-to-back here. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. We mentioned it in the first segment, but uh, Thatcher Demko will be back in net. No surprise there after Yahalak. Got the start and the win in Chicago last night. Tanner Pearson and Vasily Podkolzin back in the lineup as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming in. Lots of good texts that we'll try to get to throughout the course of the show, throughout the remainder of the show. But I mentioned it just before we went to break. Last night, uh, a, a bit of a milestone of a sort, I guess. A round number, anyways, for Bruce Boudreaux's Canucks head coach. 20 games. Since Boudreaux took over for Travis Green in early December. Took them a while to get there because of all the the stops and starts to the season. But officially at the 20-game mark, 12-4-4 after last night's win is the record under Boudreaux. And I I want to play this. Not bad. Pretty good. Not bad. It's a 700 uh, point percentage. Not not bad. Uh, That'll do. Definitely not bad when you compare it to the record and the performance before he took over as well. Which the Canucks are on pace dismal. for 115 points under right. Bruce Boudreaux over 82 games. If only they made the change. <laughs> Let's go, Boudreaux. They'd be challenging for the President's Trophy if they'd made the change on day one. Well, so is 12-4-4 reflective of this team's true talent? Are they a 115 point percentage team? After the coaching change, I don't think there's a lot of our listeners even who would say yes. Before we get into it, and we'll, we'll talk about it, get your thoughts in 650-650, where you think this team is going, what your reaction is after 20 games under Boudreaux. The coach was asked about it when he talked to the media before the Nashville game. Today, here's what he had to say. I don't know how good the kid can be, but I know we're resilient. I know there's a lot of character on this team. Um, I know uh, right now uh, we're... They're playing the right way. I mean, everybody's contributing. Uh, whether you, you score a goal, it doesn't matter, but contributing defensively. And uh, uh, so, I mean, 
when you play like that, and we've played, you know, I mean, uh, except for a couple of the teams, the best teams in the league right now, and we, and you know, we haven't got blown out. We can compete with anybody when we're on top of our game, and so that's encouraging for the last half. That I mean, especially with the amount of home games we have, uh, you know, I think if we can get through this one game tonight, and uh, with you know, and, and sneak one out here, I think we'll be in pretty good position for after the break uh, break comes. So I mean. I've learned that these guys want to win, and uh, when you want to win, uh, you do things the right way, and you and you pay the price. And we've certainly paid the price on numerous occasions. That is Bruce Boudreaux speaking about what he's learned from his team uh, after 20 games and looking ahead to the the uh, forecast, I guess, for the team or the outlook for the team for the remainder of the year as well. And I love how Bruce Boudreaux discusses their schedule. Squeak one out, yeah, right. It's just like. Well, it's it's acknowledging that it's the schedule loss. Totally. But I I just appreciate that he does it. Like, there's so much, there's so much of NHL performance that can be bogged, like, that can be boiled down to fatigue. They were tired, they weren't. Rested versus tired. And I just love the acknowledgement. Like, the way, even the, even the, you know, looking ahead, we have a lot of home games. Yeah, they do. They have, what, 22 of 36. A vast majority of their games are at home. Um... I, I just there's a there's a level of intelligence there that I think is super refreshing, super honest in its delivery too. And I think if fans pay attention to the way that Boudreaux looks at the schedule and looks at his odds and looks at what games are winnable and what games are tougher, and you know, he still expects to win it, but he expects to win it a little bit differently. Yeah. Right? If we're gonna win it, we're gonna squeak one out with Demko and Net. I think that's great. Like, I think that's such a realistic, clear-eyed way of analyzing team performance. And I just find it, uh, you know, I'm not going to use the word refreshing because I don't, I don't think, um, I don't think it's necessarily a ton different than than Travis Green. I just, I like how straightforward it is. Why pretend, right? You know, you, yeah. you know what I mean. It's there's, it's so tempting to. If a team loses in a game like this, right? Oh, the sleep, the rest is an excuse. Well, okay, but it's also just a factor that you have to be aware of, right? It's a factor that you have to be aware of. And it, it, you're right, it is. I mean, you won't use the word refreshing. I'll say it. It is a little refreshing to hear Bruce, Bruce Boudreaux talk like that. I also thought it was just fascinating, or interesting at least, to hear you know the, the adjectives that are top of mind when Boudreaux talks about this team, right? Resilient, playing with character, playing the right way. You know, they've stuck through it through some really difficult circumstances. And as you said, you know, 12-4-4, that's an over 700 points percentage uh, through the first 20 games under Bruce Boudreaux. It's very interesting to kind of forecast where this team is going for the remainder of the season. And as you said, Boudreaux kind of acknowledging, hey, we've got a lot of games at home. The question now is, can they find, it doesn't have to be a 700 points percentage, right? But can they get back to the level they need to, to make this playoff chase a reality? Well, so this is, it's interesting to me because I saw a lot of talk about the pace that they're on under Boudreaux. And every time I tweet the playoff odds up to 14%, by the way, in case you're wondering, per Dom decision at the Athletic, the... Response I get is, yeah, but their pace under Boudreaux, right? Which, again, is a president's trophy pace, right? So yep. we need to take it with a grain of salt. If you look at these first 20 games, for example, the Canucks are 14th by expected goal differential at 5-on-5. Five five. They're ninth in the NHL in point percentage, despite being still a middling 
five-on-five team under Boudreaux. Why? Save percentage number one, right? Nine, four, five. I mean, completely ridiculous. And it doesn't matter who they have in net. Spencer right. Martin comes in, crushes it. <laughs> Halak. Yara Halak, yeah. yeah, whatever. Um, Just even, another great goalie out there. Even Mike DiPietro played well enough for them to win, to be totally honest with you. So no matter who's in net, this team is getting stellar league-best goaltending. And so you look at that underlying form, and it looks good. It looks like the profile of a playoff team if you hadn't gone 37% point percentage in the first 25 games. But they did, and you can't escape that. So now you're looking at a team with 37 games remaining. And you're going to need, what, at least 93 points? At least? Yeah. To make the playoffs? At least. And that requires a 6-3-5 point percentage the rest of the way. That's a 105-point pace. So if you look at the Boudreaux era, right, we know it started. We know how it started. We know it started with points in the first nine. So they go 8-1-1 to begin the Boudreaux era. That's 17 points in the first 10 games. Right since then, it's four, three, and three, which is eleven points over the last um, over the last ten. Now that's a five fifty point percentage. If you do that, if you do what the Canucks did the last ten, where granted they had a lot of COVID complications and on and on, right? They managed to get you know if they do that over the last thirty seven games, they're at eighty seven points, which is really good. That's like that would be a phenomenal from where they are. That turnaround is really impressive. Is really impressive. That's you know, you know, they were on pace for 60 points. Yeah. Like, that's a phenomenal... That's That, for me, is an example of success. Like, Boudreaux has been enormously successful. To get to 93 points, though, right, you need to be at something more like 13 or 14 points over every 10 games, right? 13 and a half, basically. And I think that's going to be really tough to do. I mean, just look at... 13 points requires basically... Seven, like, they're over. if you're betting the over on every 10-game segment they play the rest of the way on 13.5 points, you're requiring them to win seven of the next seven, seven of, ten, of ten every time out. Yeah. Um, I just think it's a tall order. I think as they sort of grapple with where they're at as a management team, I suspect they know that it's a tall order. I think that's why you're beginning to hear the names that you're hearing um, in the rumor mill. And yet, for all of that, all of that said, I think especially if this team wins tonight, Right, their playoff odds will be back close to a one in five shot, and I think they've earned time. Like I think this group of players, you know, how much did we talk about that Oilers, um, Winnipeg, Calgary stretch is crucial? Well, they got four of six, then they beat Chicago. Now they've got a chance to make this road trip a really successful. absolute, absolute smashing success in Nashville. Um, but win or lose, you know. If they can win seven of their next ten, if right, and it's Predators, Coyotes, Islanders, that's a back-to-back for the Canucks, Maple Leafs, Sharks, Ducks, Kraken, Flames, Rangers, Devils. That's your ten. Can you win seven of those games, right? I mean, is it and, – and by the way, that brings you through to February 28th, still three weeks to go before the deadline. So has this team done enough to earn a look through those ten games? For me, it's pretty close. I I wouldn't I wouldn't say no with any type of conviction. I, I almost sort of think it's worth seeing how this plays out, especially because the moves we're discussing, right, for the most part, involve really good players. Major pieces. Who will still have market value and are still under contract beyond this season. So I don't know 
that unless there's truly an offer you can't refuse, right? Like unless the unless the Rangers come to you on your on your daughter's uh, wedding day, right? Uh, I don't know that there's a ton of urgency to not see how this plays out over the course of the month of February. Because especially it would have to be an offer you can't refuse that you don't think is going to be there on March first, right? You know what I mean? An offer that you can't refuse that you think is also has a time pressure element. And yeah, Jim Rutherford likes to do his business, you know, often before the trade deadline. But as you said, even when we get through this next stretch of 10 games, you're still three weeks out of the trade deadline. So there's still a lot of runway there to maneuver and get your ducks in the row. Well, and you don't if you're need, the Canucks front office. You also don't need to give them the full month of February, right? No. Like, you know, at some point, this team's always proving itself at this point because you have to always be gaining the way they did in Boudreaux's first 10 games, not the way they did in Boudreaux's last 10 games, right? Or more, most recent 10 games. So... You know, and and I'm breaking this up into segments in part as a tribute to to Mr. Win the Week, Bruce Boudreaux himself, <laughs> right? It is key to be looking through sort of how this team continues to respond, right? At this point, part of what this group of players is doing is earning the right to stay together. And that has to be a continuous process. I'm not saying if they lose their five of their next ten, you can't react to that and update your opinion based on the evidence in hand. You know, this team is just getting close to the point where I wonder if they've earned a look, like where if they've earned a shot to see how much more, how much further this run can go, particularly because for me, over the course of the last five games, they've in in some ways pretty materially salvaged their season again, a second time after sort of, you know, hitting the skids, partly as a result of roster uh, disruption and also because the penalty kill went in the tank. In mid-January. And for me, I do think they have earned that look because you look at their record under Boudreaux, and okay, I, I don't think they're a 700 points percentage true talent team. They are but not. you mentioned the expected goals percentage, 14th in the league since then, right? Over 50%, 51.5%. That at least is plausible, right? That that could be your true talent level playing under Bruce Boudreaux, right? That's reasonable. Maybe it's a little high. Maybe you think they're closer, you know, 18th, 19th, whatever that is. But there's not a lot to choose between, you know, the 14th expected goals team and the 18th expected goals team anyways. That's a very thin margin you're talking about. So you look about at a team that can do that five on five and then can reasonably expect very, very good goaltending. Well, a team like that does have a shot to play at, you know, a 630 percentage down the stretch or a 640 percentage. Not a guaranteed shot. It's not a a likelihood necessarily, but it's a legitimate shot. So I think for me, you kind of have to split the difference between what their points percentage has been and what they did, obviously, under Travis Green. And look, okay, if they are kind of a middle of the pack team that if they had played like this from day one of the season would very much be in the playoff race. I think from that perspective, they have earned the look. And then I think the other thing that comes into play is just the kind of delicate nature of breaking up a team to the degree which we've heard floated, right? We've heard a lot of big names, significant pieces be mentioned in Canucks trade rumors, right? And that doesn't mean that all of them are going to be shopped, that all of them are going to move. Certainly, it doesn't mean any of them are going to move. But if Jim Rutherford does decide to really put his stamp on the team with a couple of kind of foundation-shaking moves, moving high-profile, productive players, you have to sell that to your market and your fan base, but you have to sell that to the, the players who are still here, the players who remain. It's a really good point, and I think it's uh, it's something that is being heavily weighted in terms of 
determining what's next, particularly with big personalities, right? Guys like a JT Miller, yeah. guys who resonate and have weight in terms of not just how they are perceived in the Canucks room, but around the league. And so, you know, there's definitely that element to it. But the other one is, as we're talking about this playoff race, for the most part, we're discussing the possibility of the Canucks sneaking into the second wild card, which means a meeting with the Avs. Do you want to know something wild? Since the Canucks hired Bruce Boudreau, right, on December 5th, yep. December 5th, the Colorado Avalanche have played 22 games. Do you know how many games they've lost in regulation? Two. One. <laughs> oh, 20, man. 21 and one. A 9-3-2 point percentage. Since December. And this isn't a team that had like a lengthy. I mean, every team had a bit of a layoff. Yes. This is a team that's played through, like plowed through and continued to play games regularly. 22 games. A quarter of the season. One game in regulation dropped. I mean, I know Demko. That's outrageous. Demko is a great equalizer. Make no mistake. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But. Are you going to delay planning for the future to, to sort of toil and scrape and claw to earn a opportunity to get shellacked by the avalanche seven, you know, yep. four times, maybe, maybe as many as six times with your goaltender pulling out the stops a couple times. Like, come on, what's the point of that? What, who, who is served by that? You know, what's, what's the message to the fan base there? So I, I do think, I do think it's a tough situation to be tactfully navigated i do think there's an element to which the message has to be carefully delivered within the organization within that locker room regardless of what way they decide to go but i do hope for the fans in this market in particular especially as i consider the joy i felt watching canada like play the u.s on saturday i want to come back to this really quickly because they Tactically, they could have punted on that game mm-hmm. because the game against El Salvador mattered more in, in a lot of ways. But on home soil, at the top of the CONCACAF table, you know, they put in all their guys. They put in all their guys and they just kind of went for it. And I think that matters in terms of how you perceive yourself. But, but as I'm watching this game that really matters and watching Canada sort of play for a sense of pride, I'm thinking, boy, I would love for Canucks fans. I would love for this city to have really meaningful, entertaining games to care about and root for again. And for me, the race for the Canucks to get walloped by the Colorado Avalanche doesn't pass muster. I want more than that for this fan base. And I do think, while observing the fact that this this group of players has gone on the type of run that deserves some time to marinate, a a little bit more time to marinate anyway, especially if they keep it going, and especially so long as they avoid the types of efforts we saw against the Calgary Flames on over the weekend. Um, so long as that continues, I think it's it's totally fair, and I actually think it's advisable to give them some time, barring a, a godfather offer. But I also think it's vital, and and I think it's true, too, that the Canucks front office, their new management team, this new look hockey operations department, keep their eyes focused squarely on what matters, which to me is getting back to playing those sorts of games in the, in the future, in the very near future, if possible, as opposed to pretending that, you know, if they can squeak out this win against Nashville, maybe they can bump into the 
Colorado Avalanche only to hope for like a cadre suspension and Nathan McKinnon not to put up 15 points in six games. And that their goaltending falls apart yeah. or something. The only the other thing I'll add to that is, you know, part of the reason the situation has to be handed delicately Let's say you do decide to trade JT Miller, all right? Logically, what follows from that is that you're counting on extending Bo Horvat and probably on trying to extend Brock Besser as well, right? So you need to create an environment where those guys want to commit long-term to your sure. team. You can make the argument that selling too early on JT Miller is counterproductive to that goal, but you can also make the argument, I think to your point, Drancer, that getting pasted by the Colorado Avalanche in the first round doesn't particularly help you achieve that goal as well. So there's not necessarily an easy answer because you do have to make sure you're selling whatever direction you take, again, internally and externally, but I, it's it's also not as simple as keep JT Miller to prove to the rest of the team that you're serious about winning because, as you said, that has potential negative consequences as well. The, not the least of which is you're missing out on an opportunity to potentially get a great package for some of your trade assets. That's going to do it for us today. We're back at our normal time because the Canucks are no longer playing these early games. So we'll be on at noon tomorrow and for the rest of the week. Again, 5 p.m. puck drop against the Nashville Predators. It's a Canucks game day. Keep it locked right here on your home of the Canucks. Sportsnet 650.